Amen. We'll continue to pray for them, please. Okay, let's get down to it. Um, we've got a few handouts here. Look at your handout there that has the outline with the notes on it. It starts with foundational truths. And I've kind of broken this down into two parts, some foundational truths and then some application, and then I want to open it up for questions. And I'm going to go quickly because, as I've said in each of the previous weeks, I want to save time for questions, which I haven't been good at, uh, and I hope to be more concise today, but no promises. You guys know me. You're rolling your eyes now. I realize it. I want to make a distinction between the, the word sovereignty and providence. We use the word sovereignty a lot. It's a popular word in this church, I think amongst most Christians. And although I think it's fine to use those words interchangeably, for the purposes of tonight, I want us to think a little bit more specifically. So what's the difference between sovereignty and providence in this context of this discussion? Sovereignty, I think, refers to the, just the almighty power and authority of God, which is unlimited and exhaustive in overall things. Yes and amen. But what we're talking about tonight in providence is, is that sovereignty directed for his good purposes, so, in a sense, sovereignty is just the power, and providence is the purpose, how God works it together. And so I want us to look, I want us to orient ourselves on uh, some historic confessions of faith in the history of the church. Now, you may say, well, Brad, why start with these statements? Why not start with Scripture? Well, sometimes it's helpful to get a kind of summary statement of what Christians before us have gleaned from the Bible. And these are just statements based upon biblical truths, a way of a way of concisely stating and summarizing some of these important doctrines based on Scripture. It kind of gives us a little bit of a framework to work with. So the London Baptist Confession of Faith, I won't read all of it, but I do want to read a little bit of this. This is chapter 5, Divine Providence. This was written in 1689 in London by Baptists. That's why it's called the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And it is, it is sort of the, the child, the Baptist version child of the more Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith, which came a couple decades earlier, which still, both of these documents are, have stood the test of time and are wonderful historic documents in the Protestant Reformation. And this is paragraph five. God, for paragraph one of chapter five, God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs, think of those, notice those verbs, all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge. In other words, infallible meaning unable to be wrong, completely right, and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads, there's a purpose of it, it leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Paragraph two, all things, every single thing, Think about the exhaustiveness of that statement. Comes to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God. In other words, nothing surprises God. He's outside of time. There's nothing in the future that does not, is not known by God and, 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 and isn't decreed by God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Yet, by the same providence, God arranges all things to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or in response to other causes. So even though he's the great creator, causer of all things, 
He's arranged a universe that works a certain way, and so if you, if you drop an apple, it will fall because the secondary cause that's forcing that apple to fall is the secondary cause of gravity, but God is behind it all. Number three, in his ordinary providence, God makes use of means, though he is free to work apart from them. So he's created the means of gravity, but he's also free to work apart from it. He can cause an axe head to float on the water. He can cause dead things to come back to life. So he's free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at his pleasure. So in other words, God's set up a predictable creation, but he's not bound to its predictability. He can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whyever he wants, with whomever he wants, and whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And I think I just repeated whenever, but you get the point. God can do whatever he wants to do. Paragraph four, I love this. This is really good. Because paragraph four, because one of the things that we're going to have to embrace tonight is some tensions in these truths. And paragraph four is a, is a paragraph that we can camp out on. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall meaning, not, I, I would say, not just Adam and Eve, but even before that, the angels fall, the first fall, and every other sinful action, both of angels and humans. So the fall and everything that happens, good and bad, is somehow, it's under his providence. God's providence, listen to this, over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions, okay? Now, this next sentence is worth its weight in gold. And it doesn't answer all our questions, but it just says, I think, all that we can say. Through, and I also think it's the understatement of the world, of, of the night. Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfect holy purposes, you think? <laughs> A complex arrangement of methods. Yet, he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creature and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous. He can neither originate nor approve of sin. Okay, now that's an important sentence. And, and on some level, we're going to need to embrace this, I think, if we're going to make any headway in this that there are some tensions here that from our side of eternity we cannot reconcile. How can God be sovereign above, before, decreeing, ordaining all things, but not be responsible, culpable, doing sin? How can he not? And we're going to get into that a little bit more thoroughly in just a moment. So let's flip the page there, or actually go to the bottom of it. I love this, the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Article 13 at the bottom of the page, the Doctrine of God's Providence. This was written by some... Uh, some Christians in Belgium, actually authored by a, a Belgic guy uh, uh, whose name was Guido, which I just find fascinating. <laughs> and this is what he authored. We believe, and this, this again has stood the, the test of time, we believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance of fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet, God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. How do you reconcile those two things? On some level, it's inscrutable. Okay, back to the statement. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. Flip the page. 
We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. I'll stop there and you can read the rest later. I think that's a good beginning spot to just sort of orient us on the doctrine of the historic doctrine of the providence of God. And you can read there the Heidelberg Confession of Faith, the, the question and answer, again, a historic document that's helpful just kind of defining providence. But let's look at some general scriptures on providence very quickly. Psalm 115, verse 3, beautiful text. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases, attributing all power to God. Romans 8, 28, a favorite of Christians around the world. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. So he's active in all things according to the counsel of his will. So he's bringing everything about according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.3, he, or Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, speaking of Christ the Son, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he's, he's actually holding things together. And that's what Colossians 1, the next verse says, 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So where, where we're at right now, we've just read some general statements on providence. We've read some general passages attributing, uh, showing us God's providence, and we could read many, many more. Now let's dig a little bit deeper into verses that speak about God's relationship to suffering and evil. First, suffering. Psalm 119, verse 71. The psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Statutes. So he's just basically saying, well, you know, it's good. I learned something from this. But a few verses later, he actually attributes that affliction to God, coming from God. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in, your, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Job 1.8, I'm still thinking about Doug Van Meter's message a couple weeks ago when he preached so beautifully on, on suffering from Job 1 and 2. Verse 8, Job 1, and the Lord said to Satan, you know, Satan, the couple verses before that, Satan's walking to and fro in the heavenly courts, kind of not knowing what to do, and God brings up Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God is the one who introduces Job into the conversation. And then Romans 8, listen, this is a, have you guys ever heard of Romans 8 before? I don't know if you, you guys familiar with that chapter? Listen to this, listen to this. I'm going to read it slowly. This is Paul. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, praise God and amen. It's basically just saying, hey, it's going to be better in heaven. But notice, look at the rationale of the next few verses. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? I think it's meaning that creation waits for the final renewal of the new creation when our sanctification turns into glorification and all sin and evil is finally and fully vanquished 
and the consummated kingdom comes and we are with the Lord forever. Verse 20, for the creation, listen to verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Wow. What's Paul saying in verses 20 and 21? He's saying that somebody's doing some subjecting that's bringing creation into this groaning that it will finally and fully be freed from so that it can experience the joy and the glory of the renewal of the consummation of all things. But who's doing that subjecting? Well, it's not creation itself. It's not the devil, because the purpose behind the subjecting is the freeing for the praise of the glory of God. So it's God who, in some sense, is subjecting. He's, he's doing the subjecting into futility of the very creation that he's going to renew. We read this a couple weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul has this thorn in the flesh, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Where'd this thorn come from? It was a messenger of Satan to harass me. But who's actually behind Satan? Who's using Satan as a pawn in his game of redemption and sanctification? Paul is God because the purpose of this thorn was to keep me from being conceited. And Satan doesn't want to keep you from being conceited. So Satan is being used by God to bring about his good purposes. The famous statement in Genesis chapter 50, all these things are happening in the life of Joseph. Uh, he's being lied about, uh, sold into slavery. And here he's at his brothers at the end of Genesis, able to rescue them from famine in the land. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God is behind all these things. God has a meaning, a purpose. He's working even in this evil and suffering. Uh, well, I, let me pause there. I, I jumped ahead. God and suffering. So that's God and God and suffering. But let's now zoom in a little bit more. That's kind of broadly. So we might think, okay, okay, there's suffering in the world, and God is at work in it. He uses it. But there's something more sinister. There's a kind of like intention behind this suffering there's a reason behind this suffering, and it's evil. And that's what we want to get into in the next one in four. I just, alerted, I just jumped ahead. I alluded to the life of Joseph. And here we see God actually bringing about evil, in some sense, directly behind it for his good purposes. So we just read about Joseph. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Jesus... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But listen to what he says to Moses. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now later on, a few chapters later, it will say that Pharaoh hardens his heart. But God, before he even introduces Moses to Pharaoh, says, I will harden his heart. So there's God acting. He's actually, in some sense, bringing about rebellion in Pharaoh's heart for his purposes. Joshua 11, verse 20, uh, the Lord hardens the Canaanites' hearts, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So he's bringing about the hardening of a 
particular people group's hearts so that Israel would be their judgment, God's judgment against them. Judges 14 and verse 4, Samson wakes up one day and he says, I want to marry a Philistine girl. And his mom and dad say, can't you find a good Jewish girl, Samson? And he says, no, I would rather have this Philistine girl. And listen to what verse 4 says. His father and mother did not know that it, this desire to marry this Philistine girl and not an Israelite, it was from the Lord, for he, this is God, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. These, these verses are in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. This is God speaking after he has spoken to Cyrus. So what's happened is Israel is in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. And he's going to send the Persians to come conquer the Babylonians. One of the things that the Babylonians did was they would not let God's people go back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so God says to the Babylonians and to Israel, I'm going to send another foreign king. I'm going to bring another empire to come and conquer you Babylonians. And he's a pagan. He doesn't believe in me. But I'm going to use him to defeat you. And even though he doesn't believe in me, he's going to be good. He's going to be at least better to my people. And he's going to let them go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, which is what the end of the Old Testament is with Nehemiah rebuilding the city and and Ezra rebuilding the temple. And so this is his word. This is God's prophetic word to Isaiah about this ruler that he's going to raise up 100 years or so from the time that he says it to come and work his judgment on the Babylonians and bring about his plan for Israel to rebuild the city. And he says in Isaiah 45, verse 7, listen to this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I create calamity. Amos Amos 3.6 is a trumpet, and this again is a word of judgment against Israel. Is the trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? This is God speaking. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So you see, these verses are just amazing. They attribute, they're attributing God's direct involvement in these things. Lamentations 3.38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? But all of that is like peanuts compared to these next two verses, which are the height of all evil, the greatest evil in the history of time, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Listen to what Luke says through the words of Peter in the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.23, this Jesus, this is Peter speaking, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So notice what Peter's doing there. He's laying the culpability at the sinfulness of man, but he's saying behind it all is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Similarly, in Acts 4, verse 27, for truly in this city, Luke writes, There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. I'm missing something on that verse there. Let me go to Acts chapter 4 because I want you to see it. I think I wrote the wrong verse down. Acts chapter 4. And I don't have my glasses. There it is. Verse 29. Where are my glasses? Right here. Verse 29, not verse 27. It says, 
Okay, I'll read verse 27 again. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what's going on, you see this, in a sense, it's like a puppet master. God has planned and he's ordained that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel would do whatever his hand had predestined to take place. And what was that? It was the greatest evil of all time, which was the crucifixion of the Son of God. And we could go back to Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 10, where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So I just want us to have an appreciation, just kind of step back and say, okay, we can have a general doctrine of providence where there's a kind of way of being kind of almost like a, you know, an inoffensive, something that doesn't challenge our souls. I mean, there are very few Christians that would debate the idea or the notion or the truth when we say, well, God's sovereign, God's providential, God works all things together for good. But when you drill down into these verses about God's relationship with suffering, and then even more poignantly, God's relationship with evil, it gets, this truth gets a little bit harder to swallow, which then leads us to the number five, which I think is ultimately the hardest question of all. What is God's, here, here, here let's, let's, let me pause here and summarize. We've read some verses that says that God is over suffering, God is over evil, God uses it. Okay, I can accept that. But, but we have a question that we've arrived at, which I think is the hardest question in sovereignty and providence, and it is this. What was God's purpose? What was his relationship even in allowing evil to begin with in the first place? I think that's the hardest question of all. And I think the only place we can see in the Bible that even hints at an answer to that is in Romans chapter 9. Let me read Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Now, the context of Romans chapter 9, I think, is dealing with the doctrine of election and salvation, but I think it has a broader principle that applies to the question at hand, why would God even allow the fall? Why would he allow sin? Why would he allow evil? Why would he even allow the devil to fall from heaven? Why would he allow the devil to tempt Eve in the garden and Adam in the garden? Why spiritual warfare? Why even allow it in the first place? And I think we've arrived at ground zero and the hardest question to answer. And I think this is the closest the Bible gives us of an answer in Romans 9. Paul says, and he's speaking rhetorically, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Listen to verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now that 
there's a lot going on in that verse, but let me just try and summarize it as it applies to our topic at hand. I think part of what Paul is saying is that God has allowed, God has decreed, God has ordained evil to be for the purposes of showcasing, displaying his mercy and glory. Which, if you're living in a man-centered universe, is an offensive truth. But if we orient ourselves to the God-centeredness of the Bible, is the best thing God can do. Is that hard to take? Yes. But I think that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. So let me piece it all together and then make some applications and leave time for questions. Here's a few statements that I think we should be able to say. God has ordained and uses evil for his good purposes. For God to ordain evil does not mean that he does evil. God can never be blamed for evil or sin or suffering. So how do those, there's a dilemma there. There's an inscrutability. Romans 11 verse 33, his ways are past finding out. How can God ordain it but not be culpable for it? The Bible gives us those parallel truths. God is sovereign. Everything comes from God. In some sense, he ordains, decrees. Nothing happens apart from his hand. And yet, the culpability, the blame, the guilt for evil sin never rests with God. Which leads us to letter D. Yet, we, humans, are responsible. Humans and fallen angels, we are responsible for our sin and actions. How do those two things fit together? Letter E. While difficult to piece together, the alternatives are even more difficult and troubling. And here are the two alternatives. That if God actually does evil, then he's not good. Or if God doesn't do evil, but he's not sovereign over evil, he's not controlling it, he's not, he's not overseeing it, he's not above it, beyond it, if he's not over it, then he's not God. So we must live in this universe where we come to the edge of providence and we don't have all of our questions answered and ultimately it's a mystery to us. Romans 11 verse 33 that I just mentioned a moment ago that God is inscrutable. His ways are past finding out. And I want us to be able to hold both of these lines and walk them all the way to the edge and stop, as, go, go as far as the Bible will take us and not fall off the cliff. And these two ropes, these two truths that we hold on to is that God is over it all. God, in some sense, while maintaining his holiness and goodness and righteousness, is behind all things and over all things and working in all things. And yet we're responsible. And yet sin and evil rests in the culpability, rests in the creature. Both of those things are true. And we take those two ropes and we get to the edge of providence and we go as far as we can go. And I think that's where we need to be. So some applications, four quick applications. It may sound trite, but I think this is something that all Christians are privileged and should believe. God can be trusted to bring all his people all the way home. I think that's what's behind all of this, is that God is showcasing his glory. He's allowing a creation to fall 
for the display of his glory to save a redeemed out of this fall. And he promises to bring all of them all the way home. And he uses all these things to bring them all the way to himself. That's number one. Number two, we don't have to have all the answers. Uh, sometimes I think the more a person thinks about these things, the, the more confused they can get. And John Calvin, of, uh, of all people, the great uh, Reformation theologian, said that these issues of God's decrees and God's sovereignty are like a dark labyrinth. You can get almost, you can get kind of turned around in them. And there's a kind of simplicity to and a maturity to the person who just says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know as much as I can about the character of God and the goodness of God and the power of God and the origin of evil, but I'm just going to accept that God is God and I am not. He's God. I'm the creature. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust, and it's okay if we don't have all the answers. He's inscrutable. Romans 11:33. The man in Mark 9:24. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's okay to be confused and trembling. Psalm 13 is a wonderfully encouraging psalm because it is a complaint, it's lament, it's a question of God. It's six or seven verses, and six of the seven verses are basically saying, God, where are you? Lord, oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? So I don't want you to, if you come away thinking, oh my gosh, I've never thought, I've never written, like what it says in Amos, that he creates evil? Oh my gosh, this is a, this is a scarier version of God than I had previously thought, and now you're confused and you don't wonder what's, you've made me think about things that I don't really want to think about. Well, friends, that's okay if we can't piece these things together. In fact, it's impossible to piece these things together fully on this side of heaven, and that is where I think ultimately we must be satisfied that God is God and we are not. William Cooper, the, the great hymn writer, wrote a hymn called God Work Moves in Mysterious Ways. And it's, it's spelled Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. Uh, that's a famous kind of statement. You know how people just say God moves in mysterious ways? Well, that comes from a famous hymn in the 1700s by this hymn writer. And he was a friend of John Newton, the great hymn writer that wrote Amazing Grace. But look at that. God moves in mysterious ways. It's on the back of your sheet there. His wonders to perform. It's on the second sheet. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Listen to this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a Cadillac or a promotion, but it means that you are promised heaven if you're in Christ. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I think that is a hymn, a poem, written by a man who understood the inscrutability of God. We cannot fully know. And this is just another reason, friends, why we need to do life in the local church because we, we have to surround ourselves with people who will encourage us in our doubt and unbelief. Number three, it would do our souls well to look back on God's providence, his good providence in our lives. I think what happens to us a lot of times is that we're just kind of floating along. God's been good to us. Things are going well. He's been gracious to us. He's blessing us. In some sense, we're, we, we, we are aware of it. 
and we're just trucking along in the Christian life, and then all of a sudden something tragic happens or some, some bitter, frowning providence hits our lives, and we just lose all perspective. And what, what I think we need to do, and I'm getting this from John Flavel, this Puritan uh, theologian who wrote this little book called The Mystery of Providence. He said this, labor to get as full and thorough a recognition as you are able of the providences of God concerning you from first to last. In other words, spend some time along the way thinking about how good God has been to you so that you are armed with that goodness of God when inevitably the hard times come. Remember what, what Doug said in his sermon a couple weeks ago. You're either coming out of, in the middle of, or in someday approaching a trial. And if we go into those trials having never really cataloged in our heart, having never really raised any Ebenezers of God's goodness as we pass through the dry riverbed, we, we, will, we will be shocked and we will, we will lose our perspective. Psalm 103 says, forget not all his benefits. And I say this passionately because I am the chief perspective loser. Anybody else in that camp? Anybody else on that team? Man, we can lose perspective quickly. And one, one, one guard against that, one, one way to fight against that is to, to look back on God's providence in our lives. Even now, somebody might, that might be a good thing for you to do in your family. Just think about God and how he's worked in your life uh, from first to last. And then fourthly, it would, do, it would do our souls well to look forward to the hope of heaven. If you just read through Paul's letters, he's consistently emphasizing the hope of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the hope of the resurrection, that he's wanting us to lean forward. He's actually wanting to, you know that, that, that phrase, he's so heavenly minded that he's no, of no earthly good. Well, actually, Paul flips that around and he's saying you, you have to be heavenly minded to be of any earthly good because if you realize that you have all this, it will free you to give yourself away now. And so we, it'll do our souls well to look forward to the hope of heaven. What's a talk on providence and God's sovereignty without a quote from um, some obscure Baptist pastor in London back in the mid-1800s by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon? On the very bottom of your page, this is my favorite quote on providence. And I'll end on this, then we'll ask some questions. Listen to the imagery that Uncle Chuck gives us here. From the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus rules all things here and below and makes them work together for the salvation of his redeemed. He uses both bitter and sweet things, trials and joys, that he may produce in sinners a better mind toward their God. Be thankful for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad. For by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to himself. Listen to this last line. I love it. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Now, friends, let's, let's, let's make this more dramatic than even Spurgeon does. He's not just talking about maybe, oh, your bank account slips a little bit or your car's broken. 
I mean, can this be true for Jody Reese tonight? If it's not true in situations like that, then it's not true at all. That if we have heaven promise, if we will be with the Lord forever, then whatever we are facing is merely a tool, a lever that God brings into the lives of his people to wean them from this earth and woo them to heaven. Friends, that is very easy to say on a Wednesday night with a full stomach of fried chicken in a comfortable room with people that mostly agree with you, and it's a much harder thing to live out. But we need to think about these things before we approach these bitter providences so that we're f- our feet are on the ground and we're able to live them out together as a church family. All right, that's all I got. Questions, comments? Amen. CJ. Hey, brother. Is that microphone on? Jay will. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. Give it a second to pick up. So I uh, really struggled with, uh, like, the doctrine of election when I was first coming to faith, but I think, like, dropping some pride and realizing that, like, God owes me absolutely nothing, and I owe him everything. Yeah kind of just opened my eyes up to that. And I was having a conversation with somebody a few weeks ago about this, who pretty much like the reason why they left the church was because of election and just basically like God's providence over everything. And um, just throughout the conversation, like there was a lot of middle ground, like believe that like sin was definitely against God's will. Um, uh, but I kind of summarized it in the best way that I could, um, just with kind of the things that he was saying. And I've been really reflecting on some of them. And I think that, like, there are a lot of errors in what he had to say, but I think that it does kind of highlight, like, some yeah. of the providential things from God. But yeah. basically, it just came out to, like, God created a law that he knew we couldn't follow and were innately driven to deny and to break this law. And the only people who can be saved are the people that God chooses. Um, and the only way that the people who he does choose that can stop sinning is if the Holy Spirit grants them yeah. the power. And his question is, and like why he struggles with this, is like where is humanity's or like the human's liability for mm-hmm. the sin if they're innately, mm-hmm. you know, driven to commit sin, if mm-hmm. they're, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, Amen, CJ. I want to I want to amplify something that you talked about there with pride is and zooming back out to this whole idea of providence. And let's just admit that we all wrestle with that, because at the bottom of our complaints against God, I think is a misunderstanding of what life is. We Lord, work it out. You know, we rail against the prosperity gospel here. We see all these charlatan preachers bilking people for millions of dollars to live lavish lifestyles. But in a sense, if we don't embrace this idea of providence and sometimes the bitter things that come at us, we're basically espousing a more palatable version of the prosperity gospel, which is pride, where we're basically saying, Lord, I want, a, I want good doctrine and a relatively comfortable life for 80 years and then to just kind of drift off in my sleep. 
And that's a misunderstanding of what, that he's the creator and we're the creature and that life is not about us having 80 or 90 easy years. And at the bottom of that is a real pride. And friends, again, that's easy to say and it's much harder to live out and we have to help protect each other from this pride. And I think you've, I think you've, you've hit on that in a real clear way, CJ. Amen. Amen. And I think that spills into the doctrine of election as well. I think that's a kind of an individualized application of the whole doctrine of providence. Um, yeah. Do you have any like comments on like the second part or like any points to make on just, I mean, we cover, kind of covered it a lot today, but just like man's like liability and yep. sinful and, nature. Uh, yeah. And sense. I think, th and that's where, yes, I do have some comments and that's where I think it, th I'm just going to say what Paul says. Because the thing is, is like, okay, if God is totally sovereign, if he knows the future, if he knows the elect, then, um, and if he knows where I put my glasses, there we go, all right. Um, you know, then, then how are we culpable? A and that's kind of the question that Paul brings up in Romans chapter 9. He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on, God part, on God's part? By no means. Verse 19, I just read it. You will say to me then, and this is Paul anticipating the objection of the person that he's sort of dialoguing with in his mind, the, uh, the objection of his opponent saying, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. God's sovereign, and yet I'm accountable for my sin? You will say to me then, and here Paul doesn't really answer the question to our human philosophical satisfaction. Basically, CJ, Paul's answer is, well, who are you? God is God. You're the pot. He's the potter. You're the clay. And, 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 and because we're Americans and because we like to manifest our destiny, we don't like that answer. Yeah. But people in other parts of the world who don't have stuff are kind of more accepting. Like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. The gods are in charge, you know, is sort of the, 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 sort of the notion that most people have in a world that they can't control. And he says, you will say to me in verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And here's Paul's answer to that question, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to us, molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other dishonorable use? He doesn't take us to a philosophy class at Harvard. He just says, God's the potter and he can do what he wants. And let's just admit that as Americans, we, that rubs us the wrong way. And the Bible doesn't really, he doesn't get down in the mud with our philosophical presuppositions. He just says, you're a creature and he's the creator. And I just, I think we have to rest in that. And I don't say that like angrily. I'm just, I say that humbly, like, God, God, yes. Because we all have these questions. And I think it's okay to ask them. Yeah, Jeremy, well, well stated, CJ. I would just say, CJ, to your friend, most of the time what people are asking, I think, is God has a problem with my sinful desires, and he doesn't want me to have these sinful desires. Now, you can get into the whole philosophical question about well, why am I like this, but the point is God doesn't leave us there. He gives us the gospel, which you can then share with yeah. your friend and say, yep. it really doesn't matter if God, like, 
And then here's the point. You have sinful desires and you must be born again. And God provides a way for you to do that. What it sounds like your friend probably wants or what most of the world wants is I want to continue doing what I do and I want to continue having my desires and I don't want God to hold me accountable for it yeah. because he's the one doing it all. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, you know, you have to ask the person, do you, do you really want to be right before God or do you just want to continue doing what you want to do? And if they're like, well, I, then it really doesn't matter because yeah. you still are wanting to do what you want to do. Like that's your desire. You know, so I don't know. I would just Wait, say, that's a great point, Jeremy. It reminds me of, of what Jesus did in John chapter 5. Remember that? Well, you guys remember a couple years ago when we went through John chapter 5, right? Um, and uh, the, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I want to I wanna come alongside and piggyback on what Jeremy said. How do we answer a person? How do they, we, don't, we, don't, we don't stand next to God and say to our friend and say, yeah, this is how God is, you sorry knucklehead. Can't you see this? No, we like we sympathize because we're creatures too. We're like, yeah, I know. Like, God's God, and we are completely dependent on Him. He's sovereign. We're responsible, but 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 He offers us Christ, and that's what Jesus does in John chapter six. At the crowd, who many are, are, are didn't know the Lord, He doesn't say, "Well, you know, I'm sovereign. Some of you are going to heaven, and some of you." Jesus offers them Himself, and He says, "This is what you must do to be saved." Eat the flesh, eat the meat that will, will, will last unto eternal life, and he preaches the gospel to him. So uh, amen, Jeremy. We don't, need to, we don't need to get outside of creation and say, well, this is the way God works. We're in it and sympathize with our friends and say, trust in Jesus. Well said. Is that Caleb? Yeah. Hey, man. Hi. Uh, I was just thinking, I think you already hit on it, but Paul also says in Romans... 1132 mm -hmm. uh, for God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he can have mercy on them all and so I'm just thinking like yeah we are responsible because the mercy that he's given us is Christ mm -hmm. right and if we weren't responsible could we have Christ yeah yeah sorry yeah uh, and then my questions um, did God always intend to express his providence and sovereignty through his son? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes, yes. I think we have to say that um, because the, um, there was never a time that the son was not. And theologians have spoken of the, uh, the covenant of redemption. You think about the covenants in the Bible, like the covenant that he makes with Abraham, covenant he makes with Noah, David, um, but even before that, even though it's not stated explicitly in the Bible, there's an implication that God has, we see it in Ephesians chapter 1, that he's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, and so, um, and this is, this is the mystery of the Trinity, that Jesus is not in any way less than the Father, the Son is not less than the Father. He is not s eternally subordinate in his, in his being. But the plan of redemption, now we're getting into some deep stuff like infra and supralapsarianism, which is a that and $3 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, Star Starbucks, which will be a terrible cup of coffee. 
But, but the order of God's decrees, and I, I, I don't, Jesus never became anything. Jesus never became, um, you know, he, he never evolved into. So in the decrees of God, what is has always been. That's a great question, Caleb. Um, does that make sense? Have, does that answer your question? Yeah, it totally yeah, answers yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I just brought it up because I like yeah. I needed some more peoples. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, it, I guess in that case, like, does evil exist to show Christ's humility? And I, we would also say yes to that, right? Yeah, I would say, well, evil, I think, the, I think what Romans chapter 9 is saying is that evil exists to showcase God's glory, which certainly Christ's humility is part of the display of God's glory. And I think, I think if you get to Romans 11, 36, in it, all things exist ultimately for the glory of God. So evil exists for the glory of God. So then, um, reverse question, is there a part of Christ's character that does not display the sovereignty of God over evil? Uh, no, I don't think so, unless, you're, unless you want to get unless you want to talk about the distinction of Christ's nature, his, he has two natures, they're inseparable, human and divine, and um, in order to preserve his humanity, I think he had a real, uh, perfect human nature. Um, we can quibble about whether, I don't think in his human nature, which is distinct from his divine nature, he's exhibiting sovereignty because he's identifying with us. So. Uh, my, I may have just said something heretical, but I don't think I did. Um, but I would make that distinction. But there's nothing in Christ, the Son, that doesn't display his sovereignty. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, good question. Are you into theology or something? Or what? Yeah. Okay. Samantha, you can bend that down. There you go. Um, in the some application section where yeah. we don't have all the answers, the last point in that letter E, mm -hmm. this is another reason life in the local church is so important. Mm. Could you speak to that a little bit? Just like how do we walk alongside of people in really difficult situations that God is sovereign over with grace and love and, you know, just pastorally? Yeah. How do we shepherd people who are, I mean, we don't want to just be like God's sovereign over this. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, gosh, Samantha, I think, uh, quite frankly, y you and Jeremy, you in particular, are just really, really good at this, so I feel like I should be asking you that question. And I think what you guys do really well is that you just, you post yourself next to people. And I think of, I think of, um, Galatians chapter 6, uh, verse 1 and 2, that says, um, that says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should res restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Okay, that's all, but no, verse 2, that's not really the point I was making. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this idea of just kind of sticking myself, I'm just going to plant myself next to this person. You don't have to have all the right answers. Don't feel like you need to be a theologian. I'm just going to love you. I'm going to be a shock absorber. I think that the analogy of being a shock absorber, somebody's going to say mean things to you. They're going to be angry at you. They're going to ghost you. They're going to leave you unread. 
which is this phrase that kids use apparently when you send somebody a text message. What, you know what I'm talking about, Abraham? You know, does anybody know what I'm talking about when you leave, leave you unread? Like you, you send them a text message and they read it and they don't respond to it, so they're leaving you unread, R-E-A-D. You get what I'm saying? Okay. And you, you bear with people, you bear with people who are in the middle of a bitter providence and you don't expect them to act normal. And you give them grace and you hunker yourself down and you say, I love you and I'm going to be here. And something comes out of your mouth that's offensive or crazy or wrong. I don't have to correct everything. I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to love you and I'm going to call you again tomorrow. And Samantha, I think you just do a wonderful job of that. So I think you should probably teach a little class on how to do that. Yeah, Elias, come on. Come on, brother. Mine is more like a comment and just an yeah. encouragement. Yeah. So some of y'all know that um, my brother passed away last week. Mm. Um, I was 22 years old when I heard the gospel. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. None of my parents were saved and, and walking with the Lord. And my brother battled with addictions for many years. He lives right around the corner from me in my neighborhood. And I've been sharing the gospel with him since I was 22 years old. I'm 44. He never got over the hump battling addictions. Just last, last Tuesday... I get the call that his kidney shut down and his liver shut down. And, um, you know, I run up to the hospital, and he's on a ventilator. He's dying. And he never got over that hump. And I'm just like, man, God, I'm just crying before the Lord. I'm praying over my brother. It's like, I don't know if, he's, if he ever got saved. I'm just like, Lord, why this? Why this? And my point in providence is this practically is my mom and my dad, because of my brother's death, Oh, it's so beautiful. My, my, my aunt in New York, her sister, she's asking my, her sister about the gospel. And so, so many people, because of my brother's death in my hood, I live in South Columbus, because we, we're like OGs in the neighborhood. They know us. And, um, and they've been asking questions about the gospel. So my brother's death is bringing many people to my house and asking about the gospel. Mm. Um, mm. Did he go to heaven? I don't know. But I know that through his death, from 22 to 44 years old, my brother been hearing the gospel. And not just that, because of his death, now my parents are asking questions about the gospel. Mm. And so, as a matter of fact, this weekend we're going to be having a family dinner. I got to actually preach my brother's funeral last, last Saturday. Pastor uh, Reuben was there. I gave the sermon. That was my number one prayer. Lord, just let me preach the gospel. Because it was just going to be a viewing, see his body, cry, and everybody going to leave. The night before, I said, Ma, my only, my only wish is let me share the word of God at my brother's funeral. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, <laughs> right? She was like, I don't care, like whatever. So I got up there. I preached the gospel, called people to repentance. So sometimes we don't know why God allows this suffering, but I guarantee it is for the gospel. Mm-hmm. So when somebody dies in your family, don't miss those gospel opportunities even in my pain, I'm going through this. My best friend, I'm 44, he's 46. He never, he never, he never made it over hump. You know, I'll tell him, come on, let me get in the car right now. Let's go to Value Rescue Mission. I got you right now. He never went, but the gospel was preached, and praise God for that. Amen. Praise God, brother. Amen. Um, Ed, I never do this, but I'm going to call on you because I know you love Elias. Can you just pray for his parents and just the fruit to come from that and just pray for Elias's 
just this whole family as they grieve. We love you, brother. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, just, just ask the Lord to use that. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that we can call you Father. We thank you, God, for uh, just revealing to us that everything is under your control and that you are a good God and that you love us beyond anything we can understand. Mm. And we, we thank you, God, for how you can take things that are beyond our understanding and control and, and can be so painful, and you can turn it into good for those that love you. And we just pray, God, that uh, you would grant grace on Elias and his mother and father and the rest of his family, Lord, that that seed that was planted, Lord, that you would make it grow mm. and that they would come to know you. And we thank you, God, mm. in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. Praise God. I just feel like I kind of want to end it on that, but if any, any one or two, any big money, you got something? Yeah, go ahead. Get to the microphone. Yeah. Just a lot of what people said. You know, I've had some suffering in my own life. I lost a sister yeah. 29 years ago, and just the unspeakable pain I saw my parents go through. But I was fortunate. My, my parents were believers, and one of the greatest things I saw that came out of that was just the love of people gathering around them yeah. and how people loved them. And one of the things as I've gotten older is just in suffering, there's a verse in Corinthians I hang on to a lot of times when I mm. feel like I'm suffering, although I haven't really suffered. Mm -hmm. But when I see people suffering mm. is, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Mm. And going to what Brad said about uh, inscrutability there in chapter 11 of Romans, sometimes the pain is so God can manifest his glory in imperfect people. Yeah. And because if we had it all together, God could never show how great he is. Yeah. Amen. Amen. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Yes, Jeremy. Not a theological question, but I think just hearing Elias and hearing Jim, um, I think it ties to your point about life in the local church. So maybe it is a question, maybe it's a suggestion, I don't know. But uh, the power of story, mm. um, obviously a lot of the Bible is in narrative form, right, of mm. historical context, telling the story of God and his work in the life of the Israelites and even the New Testament Christians. But have we ever thought about, like, I know we, I know we do it at baptism. And I don't know, I'm assuming most other people are like me, that when I hear people get up there and they start with, this is the story of God's grace in the life of so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And we do that at baptism. But mm -hmm. have we ever thought about if we ever get back to, like, maybe doing a Sunday night or part of midweek fellowship or something, of allowing people to kind of just like a, I don't know, you got to mm -hmm. probably do this very methodically because mm -hmm. people could take five hours. I know because I could talk for five hours, but, <laughs> but like just in a way of allowing the church body just to tell their story mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. God's work in their life because mm -hmm. you never know what somebody in the audience is yeah. going through and they can read doctrine all day long yeah. and it might not hit them. Yeah. But then when they hear somebody's, 
story and they're like, wow, God, yeah. that happened to you and God did yeah. this. And because hindsight is 2020 and some folks are really young and they may not have stories. Yeah. So I don't know. I just yeah, no, great thought. thought about yeah, that. Thank, thank you for bringing that up. That's a great thought. Yeah. And we've just seen that on display tonight. I mean, these truths, um, in a sense, and I'm going to end on this. And if you got a question, I'll hang around for, for however long. You know, getting back to why it's so important to do life in the local church, sometimes truth can just sort of hang. It's like a plane circling the airport, you know. But when you hear what Elias has been through and when you get to know big money and when you and when you, you, you you're with people that are in a ditch and and you got to be the one or you're in that that plane that truth it starts to land in your own life and and it's and it's real and we can taste and see that the Lord indeed is good so let's let that kind of be our, our final accent tonight um, um, God is good to his people, and let's love each other through the bitter providences, because as William Cooper said, behind every frowning providence, he, he hides a smiling face. Um, I hope this has been beneficial these four weeks. Um, we're going to have another one coming up in the fall, but this will be the last one. So you're welcome to come next Wednesday night, but nobody will be here. It'll just be you. Um, so let's all stand, and I don't think you need the words to this, but I would just like for us to sing the doxology. Maybe, Jay, you could help us. Um, and let's just sing the doxology twice through, um, and, and that will be our, our benediction tonight. And stick around and encourage one another. Meet somebody that you don't know, and pray for one another, and um, love one another. So, Jay. Lead us in the doxology. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now the second time through, let's pray, let's sing it as if our brother and sister next to us really needed to hear this truth and it depended on us to encourage them in the Lord. Let's sing it to one another in this way. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Amen. Be blessed. Thanks for coming.